everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome back to the Supply Side Podcast. Great to have the pleasure of your company once again. Wow, what a moment of change we're in around the world at the moment, huh? It's what the US Marines used to call a fluid situation. A fluid situation. I always loved that metaphor. The idea that sometimes things are unpredictable and in flux. I think that's very much what we're seeing at the moment. We have new, a new president. We have stimulus flying around the world, left, right and centre. Almost $20 trillion at last count since COVID kicked off. And as I like to say, every dollar finds a home. So we're going to talk about some of that today with our special guest, Mr. Mike Kendall, joining us again from Texas. Mike's depth of insight, his knowledge, his uh, experience, his real dedication to predictive classical economics is such a blessing. Today we're going to be talking about more of the formative, the foundational pillar concepts of Jude Wininsky's supply-side model. We're going to be talking about Federal Reserve balance sheets. So listen carefully. Mike just brings us such a depth of insight. So there's some real gold here. All right, let's do this. This is the Supply Side Podcast. And it's time to welcome back our guest, Mr. Michael Kendall. Mr. Michael Kendall, all the way from Texas in the United States of America. Welcome back to the Supply Side Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. Hello, Jonathan. It's great to be back again. And I really enjoyed our first episode. It was a new event for me, but I'm happy with how it turned out. And I'm still greatly pleased with uh, everything you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. It's a great journey. It's I listened to our episode recently when I was cycling up in Queensland and I got so much out of it. And on the weekend, we had a big family event here and one of my nephews was over who's doing, yeah, I think he's doing international finance at the university here and he's been listening to it and he said to me he goes i had to keep pressing stop and going back and listening to because he said there's a lot of depth in it and your episode so far has been the most successful so if people haven't heard that make sure you go back and check out that original one so without devoting too much time to it we're living in most interesting times it's a week since the inauguration of president biden uh, new stimulus package, all sorts of interesting things happening. Before we get into some of the supply side stuff, what's what's your general take? What's your general feeling about political economy, both in the United States and globally at the moment? It's an easy opening question. I think anyone paying attention, there's a, a big transitioning happen, and it's uh, hard to see where it's going. But I think when you look at it, to most rational people, it doesn't make sense. And I think people are trying to understand it. We talked about this in a email exchange, just Tesla. How do you explain Tesla? I think most people rationally can't explain it, but there has to be something behind it. And so there's all kinds of below the surface events, in my opinion, occurring that it is difficult to understand. But if you understand the model that we're talking about, a supply side model i think it, you can explain that those events through the model and that's the purpose of this podcast is to try to create a understanding of the model for people because it's not taught anywhere you have to self-learn it i self-learned it you started self-learning it and contacted me and and i learned it from jude and other people and you just have to pass it on so let's do that so for new listeners what we're doing here is we're exploring the supply side university work of jude winiski we're going to put links obviously through to that but what mike and i are aiming to do here is to unpack some of the posts over time and allow the podcast to become a bit of a resource globally for people wondering if it is in fact possible for central bankers to control the world or there might either be other forces at play so in this episode we're looking at the first three main posts in Jude's work on supply side. And what I wanted to talk to you about is something that comes up in that first post. You've mentioned it before, and it's this concept of superior predictive power. What we are trying to discover in the supply side model is does supply side offer superior predictive power to other models? And what Jude talks about in that first post is the difference between the Ptolemaic 
and the Copernican system. So if listeners aren't familiar with that, the Egyptian ruler Ptolemy developed a cosmology, developed a, a form of tracking the stars, which had some degree of predictive power. But eventually, when Copernicus came along and completely created, brought about a phase transition in our understanding of the cosmos, the Copernican system had a superior, vastly superior predictive power. So that's the setup of my first question to you, Mike. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how do you make a case for the superior predictive power of a supply-side focused approach to economics and to political economy. Yeah, you use the uh, best analogy, the analogy that Jude always used, the Ptolemaic planetary system versus the Copernicus sun-based model. Ptolemy was based on the Earth-centric, Copernicus was sun-centric. It's a foundational model. You have to get the foundation of the model correct to be predictive because the Ptolemaic system, it operated for over a thousand years, but it, it never quite got things so that he had to come up with equants and ellipses to trick the system up to make it work. Whereas when Copernicus came along with the sun-centric system, which of course explains our planetary system, he got it wrong in the beginning that he had circular orbits, but eventually other people came along and posited elliptical orbits and it all fell into place and it worked. So it's predictive if the foundational model works. What's interesting is if you look at demand side, what we're talking about is a production-centric economic model, the producer versus a consumer-centric economic model, just like you had an Earth-centric planetary model versus a Sun-centric. Okay, it's two separate models. Which one's right? I think it's basically common sense that you have to produce before you can consume. All right. Without production, there is no consumption. And we all have an unlimited propensity to consume. So we don't need to be incentivized for people to want more or better or more things. On the production side, there is a very incentivization requirement necessary because people are putting their time, energy, and talent at work. The capital is required. There's risk-reward you have to get all those incentivizations correct for that production to occur. And if they're not correct, if they're not incentivized, then the production doesn't occur. And so when you look at, for example, a communist system versus our capitalist system, there's no incentivization to do anything if you don't own the means of production. There's no reward for your risk in a command and control system. So in a very essential way is just basic common sense i think so so many things that are common sense we often say these days they're not so common so help us understand is the fundamental flaw in the keynesian system placing the concept of aggregate demand at the center of that economic cosmology so is Really what we're living through at the moment is the outworking of hyper-Keynesianism. So MMT, like government trying to stimulate and stimulate demand. Is that the fundamental flaw in the Keynesian model? Yeah, the fundamental flaw is, again, that it tries to posit that every human is a equal hydrogen model that can be put into a mathematical equation and you can produce a desired outcome. Whereas when we look at the supply side, the production model, it's behavioral. It's not mathematical. We don't do things because we're all the same. We're plugged into an equation and we get an outcome. We do something because we're all different. We all have our own individual ideas and responses to stimuli that are all around us. It's interesting you say that because this morning I was going through Jim Rickard's latest book and he makes the point that the main flaw in Milton Friedman's monetarism is he assumed that velocity of money was constant. Now what Rickards was saying today was that the truth about humans and why I'm saying this is because when you were just saying that these models assume we're molecules all acting the same way what Rickards is saying is that the problem with monetarism is that we don't all act the same way and velocity of money isn't constant because it's controlled by humans perceptions of how they feel the confidence they have so is it true that the supply side model has a better grasp on how humans actually behave and live 
Well, again, when you go back to monetarism, Milton Friedman's monetarism, it was MV equal PT. It was a mathematical equation. And velocity, like you said, was assumed to be constant because on a gold standard, it was constant. But as soon as they left the gold standard, and it basically blew up the equation because people didn't respond the way they were expected to with the constant supply of money, which was actually credit and money. And it just didn't work. It was a mathematical equation that assumed posited certain constants and people aren't constant. So getting back to the basics of predictive supply side, it is behavioral and it allows for that behavior to be incorporated into the economic model. Because again, we're back to your episode with Nathan Lewis on the magic formula. When you have stable money, when you have low taxes, you have all the incentives for behavior, for production. And through all that comes growth and and everything else beneficial to standards of living and human beings. But none of that can be formulated into a mathematical equation, but it's the desire of economists of government to have a desired output that they can control. And it simply doesn't work in the world. And that's what we're seeing everywhere around us right now in economic forces that seem to just be blowing up because there no longer is stable money. The incentives are skewed because the Fed is controlling the price of interest, which is the most essential price signal to any market. And once that happens, you get the capital misallocation and the economic distortions, and it can't hold. And that's, I think, the fear that you and I have discussed before is in the previous podcast is when things can't hold, how long can they go on for? Yeah, and that's the question. My brother, who's an historian, we were discussing this on the weekend, and I made the point that Rome was sacked in 476, but it took about another 400 years till it completely collapsed. So the question I'm interested in is whether these things happen quickly or they're going to drag on for a long time. I think Rickard's position is that we're going to be in for a long journey of low growth. I mean, he thinks we're in a depression and the stuff that I've been looking at this week is, of course, that the Dow took, I think it was close to, was it 25 years or longer to get back to its pre-1929 levels after the the Great Depression started. So the thesis is that we may be in a depression now and we could be looking at 20 to 30 years before we really get back to to where we were. But listening to you again, I thought about listening to Jeff Snyder this week on repo markets. He's quite brilliant on it. I I had to listen to this several times to really get it. He talks a lot about shadow banking and a lot of what's happening in the collateral side of the repo markets. And what struck me was he just said the central banks don't actually know what to do or what's actually going on half the time. I say that because my illusion coming into all this was that we have this highly intelligent people making brilliant decisions as best they can, as often as they can. But it seems that at this present moment, there's aspects of our monetary system where even the people controlling it don't seem to know what's going on. Do you think that's fair? That's an interesting discussion because that was a view I held for the longest time and I've been coming around to a different view and the reason is because of the COVID crisis. And because for me, the COVID crisis changed everything because I didn't see any spontaneous order to how people responded to COVID. It it seemed like it was top-down controlled Everybody will wear a mask. These were global edicts. They were all over the world. The lockdowns occurred everywhere. And it started making me think that maybe we've reached a point where there are central banks, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements in Geneva, the global central banks, the IMF, the World Bank, the WHO, corporations, foundations, and of course, media, that seemed to all be in lockstep in the same direction. And if that's true, it's not something that anybody can prove. The whole idea for me beforehand was like, what, there's a group of small elite people that get together and decide what the world's, what's gonna happen in the world? It seems preposterous and most people can't think that can happen. But when you look at COVID, there's really no other way to explain these events, and they were actually predicted 10 years ago in a Rockefeller document. So the whole point I'm getting at, if events for a pandemic 
can be controlled on a global basis, that possibly economic events could be under the same effect. It's just a, an idea I've started looking at in uh, probably the last six months because really it gotten deep into just seeing everything that's happening with COVID and none of it making sense and none of it adding up with the science and wondering how it's happening and how it's occurring and how it might be occurring in other realms like economics. So that level of organization would have to be extraordinary, right? It's, it seems unlikely that there is some highly coordinated global pact to drive a lot of these outcomes, but because it seems that the more people involved in something like that, sooner or later something's going to get out. Is, is it more a case of just, I guess, the socio-cultural, intellectual trade winds of the West over the last hundred years have brought about the kinds of systems of control and consumption that allow this to happen? I know that sounds a bit convoluted, but I, what I'm getting at is in, in one model there's a, a room full of 10 or 15 global elite pulling the strings on the whole thing, which seems difficult in some ways to believe because coordinating vast numbers of governments and media organisations would seem to be difficult. Or is it a case of just as a society we've got to a place where we're highly accept accepting of control where people are so i guess shaped by consumption and self-interest that they'll do exactly what they're told if it means they're going to be relatively left alone any thoughts on all that where it becomes really alarming is when you think about all the things i just mentioned but then you look at the world economic forum run by a guy named klaus schwab who's a very strange person, almost like a Bond villain, exactly like a Bond villain. But they're promoting all these ideas openly, and their name for all of this is the Great Reset. And as we speak, they're in Davos right now with their 2021 Great Reset Conference. And so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of all that. But it's openly being promoted, and when you look behind it, they use these buzzwords like resiliency and inclusiveness and communitarianism and that's sustainable development. But behind all those buzzwords, you're actually talking about a model that's moving towards the Chinese social credit score, totalitarian control, and it's all being vetted by advances in AI, artificial intelligence, which provides the surveillance and the means to create this control. And the other things coming out of this that you'll hear discussed about are smart cities, the new ESG investing that's environmental, probably gov environmental sustainability and governance, I think, uh, which is basically investing based on wokeness as a way to explain it. So all these things are happening. They're pretty much in the opening. And when you start looking into them, they're very alarming. And it leads me to believe that we, we might be on path that we've never seen before. And I think it's something that people need to be become aware of and start looking more into it. And there's plenty of people that are aware of it. There's all kinds of alarms being put out against the Great Reset and the world economic. All these, there's like a spider web connection between all these corporations, foundations, places like the IMF. They're all interconnected, these trilateral commissions, Bilderbergs. It's all just interrelated and connected. and. And there's now a common message emanating from all this down to your corporate structure. In my corporation, you have these sensitivity training things you have to go to. And it, it seems to just all flow downhill from sort of a central control that, of course, nobody can describe or explain exactly what it is. It's like the great joke, what's uh, give any centrist that the answer to every problem is more centralism. Listening to you, I'm thinking the problem for these interconnected organizations what they really want to deal with is individual freedom and free enterprise in the sense that I was reading the other day, we've added here in Australia 60,000 new public sector jobs. I know those numbers aren't big compared to, say, the US economy. At a time when huge numbers of small businesses, medium enterprises have been fundamentally wiped out, we found a way to add 60,000 new public sector jobs in, in government and admin. So do you feel this is part of this, the kind of 
suppression of the private sector. But it's it's not that simple, is it? Because because some big corporations are really flourishing, but I guess they're not employing as many people as they once might have, and they're not tending to reinvest capital back into the economy. So they're getting rich, but that money isn't stimulating the wider economy, the wider population. It's affecting a nation's political economy in a different way. We're seeing this. Another aspect of what I was talking about is the lockdowns that are essentially wiping out small business, mom and pops, entrepreneurs. And there's no rational way to explain it. When you look at the science behind COVID, because there's like a you know, 99.6% survival rate for anybody under 70. And, and when you look into the immunological aspects of it and the herd mentality or herd uh, immunity, you can't explain these lockdowns and the destructions it's done to psychology and finances of individuals, except from a controlled aspect. Because in a spontaneous order where people spontaneously responded to COVID, however locally or citywide or state or even nationally, however they wanted, I don't think you wouldn't have seen any of this. You wouldn't have seen lockdowns. You wouldn't see these rushed vaccinations. You wouldn't see all these things that are happening. And in conjunction with that, in, in the U.S. right now, we're seeing a real assault on freedom of speech through the big tech companies, which are siloed information control that seem to be very closely related with all these other things I'm talking about. So for me, it's very alarming, and it, it almost surpasses traditional economics as, we, as we've known it here in America, because it, one of my views of economics is that there's nothing new under the sun with economics. It just keeps cycling and repeating itself. We see that you go back in history, you have stable money, then you have devaluation, then you have hyperinflation, then you have fiat money, and then it collapses, and then you go back to it, cycle back to stable money, and that repeats over and over. And the same thing on the democracy and fiscal side is that you have monarchs, you have feudalism, you have socialism, you have democracy, you have capitalism. And now we seem to be cycling back towards totalitarian feudalism or socialism through communism back to totalitarian feudalism if if this all this stuff kept going in the direction that they're talking about now i don't think anything of this all this will happen all i'm doing is laying out what i'm seeing occurring in front of my face and how the global masses will respond to all that remains a big question because you're seeing people all over the world now start to revolt against the lockdowns, against the mask, against their business shut down, against the destruction, against the psychological destruction. You'll, um, yeah, look, I've found since I've got into this work more and more, I, I keep joking with Karen, my wife, that I've, I keep saying to her when we're out, I haven't dinner with people, I'm like, you know, give me the look. If I start to go down the rabbit hole, give me the look. Because it, I think what I've noticed is that as I have, since I started at, at Oxford, my eyes have been open to the global monetary system as it is and and you start talking to people about this and my experience has been 99.5 or more percent of people have absolutely no idea how the global monetary system works and the implications for their individual lives. So many times in the last few weeks I've just seen people get this glazed look when you start to explain monetarism and inflation and deflation and how they should be hedging, people are just, I guess I say that because as these great seismic forces are moving through this moment of history, most people seem quite unaware of the, the, the shape and the size of it and the implications for them which I guess is how you would want people to behave if you were running things, right? You can almost see it evolving because what do you do? You destroy the small business and middle class. Uh, people lose their jobs. And then what's the next thing? Well, we're going to give you a $600, or $1,400, a $2,000 check. And then what comes after that? When you start looking into this, and they're talking about it, is a UBI, Universal Basic Income. And and then if you expand that out further to the other things that I've talked about under techn 
technocratic control. That's the whole basis of the system is that there will be elite control and the rest of us will be on UBI under AI control. And there's, you go into the uh, World Economic Forum and they talk about transhumanism, the melding of man and uh, machine, fourth industrial revolution. All this stuff that I'm alluding to is published out there in books on the WF website and you can read it and you can see it and you can see what they're talking about. And when I, maybe when I talk about it, it sounds uh, outlandish or ridiculous, but all I'm doing is just telling you what they're actually publishing and interpreting what it means. Was it Klaus Schwab who said in 50 years you'll own nothing and you'll be happy? That was, you can, there's a video of them that they created and it says in 2030. That's right. You will own nothing and you'll be happy. You'll rent everything. Drones will deliver what you need to your front door. You won't own anything. This is what they're putting out on their websites and and they're conditioning people in this direction through, I think it all started with the COVID and the economic destruction and, and the wake of COVID. And then it's going to move us into this path that they're talking about. So let's join a couple of, there were three sort of questions I wanted to work through with you on uh, supply side here. And we've talked a little bit about this concept of the supply side model with the producer at the center of the economic cosmology should provide us with superior predictive power. The second thing we've talked a little bit about is uh, this idea that Jude has of economic eras and systems and monetarism and now MMT being the, what he would say, what, what he wrote as the dying gasp of Keynesianism. What I want to talk to you about is the most basic question. We can't keep printing currency. And of course, people know we don't actually print it. We just type it into a computer screen. Lynn Alden said the other day, 19 trillion of global stimulus has come into the global monetary system since COVID. My favorite mantra, every dollar must find a home. What I'm asking you is let's talk about the superior predictive power of supply side. Let's talk about where MMT is going. Listening to Rickards this morning, the magic number seems to be once a country hits 90% debt to GDP, then they get a, what he calls a phase transition. 90% debt to GDP is the moment at which government creation of a dollar goes negative. So it actually doesn't create an equal dollar of value in the economy. It, it actually begins to retard the economy. So if that's true at 90%. US debt to GDP as of today is 130%. Can you give us your superior predictive supply side insights into where you think monetarism is going to go and what would be necessary for the house of cards to collapse we talked about this before in our previous podcast there's the gold signal and gold is like the purest economic form because nobody can manipulate it or control it it's value they can't manipulate it it's the value of all the gold ever produced versus the gold that is produced annually. In other words, gold's value is stable. So it's foundation for looking at anything economic. But to understand gold is the inverse of the value of the dollar. I think most people understand that because as the dollar loses value, gold gains in price. So as dollar becomes less worthless, gold becomes more valuable. Now, actually, the gold's value doesn't change. It just changes in relation to a fiat dollar which has no defined reference other than gold so what i'm getting at is when you to understand gold you have to look at the fed balance sheet and a lot of people have been very alarmed by the fed's balance sheet and i started working on a post today for my website manonthemargin.com where i'm i went through the fed's latest balance sheet and looked at it to try to understand what's happening and when you understand how the fed works how base money what base money is, what it means, what the Fed controls, and you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's not as alarming as it appears. Now, if you go back to the beginning of 2020, the Fed's balance sheet was like $4.1 That's the total assets that the Fed has. And, and today, and the latest from last Thursday, it's $7.3 Okay, that's a huge increase in one year in the Fed's balance sheet. 
when you start looking into the into it more closely and you understand how the Fed works, it's not so alarming because when the Fed creates money, it buys bonds. Okay, here's the thing about MMT. We can't have MMT as long as the Fed, there's a firewall between the Fed and the Treasury. And the Federal Reserve Act created that firewall, meaning that the Fed can't directly buy uh, treasury debt. This is okay. open open market operations. Right? When the treasury issues debt, it's purchased on the open market. On the secondary market, the Fed buys it from uh, primary dealers. dealers yeah. Every time the Fed buys a bond it, from its magic checkbook, it substitutes in cash and reserves for that bond. And the Fed controls those cash and reserves down to the penny. Now, currency, cash is currency in circulation. That's on demand. Anybody can go to the bank and ask for cash and globally there's somewhat i've read that 80 percent of hundred dollar bills are held outside the united states but it doesn't matter because the fed controls that those cash and and it controls reserves now what you have to understand about reserves is that there are excess reserves that that occurred in 2008 and only existed nominally because excess reserves were always a cost to banks to maintain. But after 2008, they changed uh, an act that allowed the Fed to pay interest on reserves. So we started uh, depository institutions, started holding excess reserves and getting a return on them. So when you look at the, for example, the Fed's $7.3 trillion balance sheet, $3.2 trillion of that is excess reserves, meaning that's basically reserves that are locked out of the economy. Now, they can enter the economy, but they're basically held by banks and for various reasons. But for whatever reason, these excess reserves are held by these banks. And right now, they're drawing basically zero interest on them. So they're holding these excess reserves and getting basically zero return on them. But they're still holding them. The other issue to the Fed's balance sheet, and this is technical, but the Treasury has a general account that it's held at the Federal Reserve. And every dollar in that Treasury general account that's held at the Fed is a one-for-one one removal of reserves from the system. And right now, and this is what has really exploded in the last year, the Fed's general account has gone from $380 billion to $1.6 trillion in the last year. So if you take the excess reserves and the Treasury's general account, that's $4.8 trillion. And you subtract that from the Fed's balance sheet of $7.3 trillion, that's that's 2.5 trillion. So you could say, in effect, that the Fed has a 2.5 trillion balance sheet right now, because 4.8 trillion are reserves that are held out of the system. But here's the interesting thing: if you go back to 2020, January of 2020, a year ago, and you did the same calculations I just talked about, you would get a 2.1 trillion dollar Fed balance sheet. Okay. So that's like a 25% increase last year in the actual realistic balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. What has gold done in the last year? It's gone up almost about 22%. So gold has basically signaled what the actual, what has occurred with the actual balance sheet of the Fed. Using these calculations I just talked about, the Fed's balance sheet has gone up 25%. Gold has signaled that increase. It's gone up almost the same, around 22%. Now, you could get more deep into the Fed balance sheet and, and work out some more stuff, but I'm just giving you the most basic stuff of it. So the gold, when people look at the $7.3 they think gold should be 2000 2500 should be going towards hyperinflation. But when you understand how the Fed actually operates and you look at its balance sheet and you view it properly, and then you look at gold, you're seeing that this signal is telling you pretty much exactly what's happening. So when you say, okay, Mike, what's your predictive for the future? I always, understanding all this, these things I talked about, I always rely on the gold signal. I'm looking for gold to tell me what's happening. And, and there's one more component to gold that, that you can't analyze, and that's demand, dollar demand. The supply, we can look at the Fed's balance sheet. We can determine supply down to the penny because it's all right there on the balance sheet. But global demand for the dollar is 
you can't determine that because nobody knows why somebody wants dollars or not. And that's that's based on trust. The, the people have trust in the dollar. Or, or really, the way I see it, there's no other alternative. If you don't want the dollar, where else do you go in the world? You got the euro, you got the yuan, you got the yen. They're all in the same boat. So when you look at the Fed's balance sheet, and it's and it's not as crazy as it seems at first glance, and you look at all the other fiat currencies in the world, and you understand what gold is telling you, then on the surface, things are not out as as out of whack as it appears to us just looking at things from the crazy perspective of everything that the Fed and, and fiscal policy that's occurring. Now, all this could change tomorrow if something happened that people lost trust in the dollar and, and the demand decreased and, and the Fed didn't reduce that supply, then you, but gold would signal that again. So when you talk about prediction, predictive economics and understanding the world, my my foundational belief is understanding the gold signal, understanding gold, understanding what determines its price and how that interacts with the uh, Federal Reserve fiscal policy and geopolitics. And so how did you build that knowledge? Because your, your knowledge on the gold signal is extraordinary. So what are some of the key you know, resources? What did you read? For people well, listening, how did you do it? How yeah, did you build okay. this knowledge? From Jude, this was this is Jude's model. This is what how Jude was a editor of the Wall Street Journal in '78. He just quit his job, started a consulting firm from scratch, and built it into a very formative consulting institution over the years. And the reason he did it's because he got things. And I mentioned this before in our previous podcast that the whole time I was, was with you for 13 years, I tried to find errors and I never could. And so I, I learned this model from writing, from reading his su supply side university. And I, it's very involved learning how the Fed works. Very few people understand yeah. how the Fed works. It's a big mystery to him. And that's the way the Fed wants it. That's what, what was uh, Alan Greenspan famous for? He's famous for just gibberish. He'd get in front of senators and just say a bunch of gibberish and nobody would have any clue what he was talking about. And I can't remember if I said this to you or to one of the other recent interviews, but I was reading that the, that the Fed has over 1,500 economics PhDs on staff. So the U.S. Federal Reserve System has the greatest concentration of economics PhDs on the planet. Yeah, and have you ever looked at one of their papers? I, yeah. I've actually, you read these papers and there'll be a mathematical equation that's uh, half a page long, and that's their econometric model. Yeah. And again, going back to the, we're supposed to plug us into it, they're supposed to get the desired outcome. And the Fed has always got their dot plots and their R stars and all this nonsense that they come up with. And they're always completely wrong. But it doesn't matter because nobody understands it, and it's basically the only game in town. And, and they get away with this stuff. But, you know, what I hope your podcast and what I'm trying to explain now is there, there is a actual explanation beyond all this nonsense that's foundational, that explains things, that if you learn it and understand it, then you're not lost in this miasma of economic nonsense that's just spread like a... a virus or a mist over everyone let me ask you but i want to go on to our last question in a second about taxation but can you talk to us a little bit about gold price suppression i came across i'm just trying to pull it up here i came across some of this recently what was i reading i just got to pull up my library i was looking at the money bubble i was by james turk and john rubino they had a pretty extensive section on gold price suppression at the hands of central banks and several large commercial banks. Have you got any anything for us on gold price suppression? Yeah, yeah, I think I have a big disagreement with the gold analyst over suppression of gold because for me it's like the, the Keynesian e economists, when their predictive model doesn't work, what do they do? They create, if they predict something that doesn't work, they create a new term to explain it. And the, 
that's where you come up with liquidity trap and uh, pinned up demand and circular stagnation and trilemmas and push pull. So basically, they predict something, it doesn't happen. So then they create an economic turn to ex explain why it didn't happen. <laughs> I see the same thing on the gold analyst side when. They don't understand all the things I talked about before don't fit into their model because they don't have the same foundational model to the extent I do that I learned from Jude Wininski. And so when they can't explain something in the price of gold, then they resort to manipulation. So, for example, in 2008, gold was $1,000. It fell to 700 They started QE, expansion of the monetary base. Gold ran up to $1,900 in 2011. And then it fell and crashed to $1,100 in 2015. Yeah. How did the gold analyst people explain that? They explained it by manipulation, that the Federal Reserve was manipulating the price of gold. But they can't explain to you, why did they only manipulate it down to 1100 Then at 1100 why is it now climbing back? Why are they not manipulating it anymore? and allowed to climb up to, again, back up to $1,900. If you go on my website and, and, and look at my gold analysis, I explain exactly what happened. And it has to do with what we talked about before with these excess reserves that, that had never happened before. It was new and people didn't understand them. And eventually the market found out that when gold hit $1,900, there were like 2.7 trillion excess reserves. So all this gold price prediction based on expand, expanding Fed balance sheet, eventually people came to understand, or the market came to understand that these excess reserves were going to be withheld from the system. And so it had to rebalance down to a Fed balance sheet minus these excess reserves, which ended up at about $1,100. And, and currently this when you look at it from this perspective with the within the last year with the the huge increase in the fed balance sheet people like the ones you were reading and talking about ex expected another explosion in the price of gold and it doesn't happen so then they resort back to manipulation now on the futures market short term yeah you can manipulate the price of gold somebody can buy or sell a bunch of future contracts and for a day or two drive the price down get a bunch of people to sell drive the price down further but long term the price of gold cannot be manipulated because it's it the price of gold is determined by a ratio of two ratios in, in the u.s for the u.s dollar price of gold that's the supply of base money over the demand for base money. And that's the top ratio, and the bottom ratio is the supply of gold or the demand of gold. But the bottom ratio is, in general terms, is basically constant because the price of gold is constant. So what that leads you to conclude is that the price of gold is determined by how the Fed creates base money and the demand for it. And like I mentioned before, the supply is known, but demand is unknown. So that's where, as a someone interpreting the gold signal, you have to be able to interpret that demand component because that's just something you learn with years of study. And it's something, if you go back and read Jude's archives, he's constantly interpreting what the dollar demand is and what the gold is telling you. Coming back to Jude now, the final question for this episode comes from the third post in his supply side university so we're going to talk a little bit about taxation and the notes that i took i said jude argues there is no ideal taxation rate per se it's a question of political economy what kind of society do we want to live in and the question that i wrote here was i'm curious how mmt explains the need for taxation at all if we can just create currency then why tax people why tax people when we are heading for more universal basic income? Why bother giving citizens free cash if you plan to tax it? So can you give us your, your broad theories on Jude's take on taxation? And why is taxation still a question in a pure MMT universe if you can just print currency endlessly? As I mentioned before, we haven't gotten to the MMT. We're if you ever see that firewall between the Fed and the Treasury, the 
Federal Reserve Act changed, then MMT will be coming. And all this that you're talking about comes into effect. The idea that uh, you can fund everything, taxes don't matter. You'll also probably see the price of gold explode upwards in that case. But what was the, uh, okay, we were talking about MMT. So what people, what people see is they see um, this massive increase in the balance sheet, these outlays that are occurring, the debt that's increasing, the budget deficits. And they, th you know, and I think you're, you're th uh, correctly thinking that this is heading us towards MMT. But really, when you think about it, under the system we have, all these budget outlays, all these fundings, all these payments to people, it's no different than how our budget outlays work now for funding our useless wars or for funding the Great Society or for funding any wasteful spending, foreign, foreign money that we send to all these countries. All this is just another component of the money that we spend that we've always been spending. Now, where it gets confusing is that this seems so outrageous because of the increases in the, the amount of the Fed's balance sheet. But like I talked about before, those are elusive or, or not as they appear when you look into it more deeply and understand how the Fed works. So the point, I, I guess the, the point I'm trying to get around to is nothing has really changed right now. Taxes haven't, now they may change soon. Biden seems to be... I've heard some really bad things, fiscal proposals on taxes that have been promoted by whoever's running Biden's administration. So it could, it could get, it could get uh, very worse as we go along. But at the moment, we're really just a continuation of everything that's happened before. And while it, it seems extreme underneath the surface, at the granular aspects, it's not extreme yet. But all these things are, when you have a predictive model, you're going to look at these taxation proposals, you're going to look at the spending, and then you're going to look at the price of gold and see what it's telling you. And then you're going to look around the world and see what's happening geopolitically because all of those things the affect demand for the dollar. So in the supply side model, taxation in general so nathan lewis concludes his recent book the magic formula arguing for a kind of he seems to i think nathan's take is 10 percent. he likes value added taxes but flat rate taxes right across across an economy and in this post from jude we're, we're talking about this ideal rate of taxation uh, john tamney from real clear markets is coming on next week i read his piece yesterday on biden's plan to raise corporate taxes and john's take is the democratic argument seems to be we're going to take money from corporates and we're going to push that out as stimulus into the economy but john's take is you're not creating anything there. You're just taking money out of one set of pockets and sticking it in another set of pockets and no value is being created. What's your take on taxation in general in terms of political economy? What do you think are the limits of the state? What, do you, what sorts of rates of taxation do you think are conducive to a successful supply-side model? The problem with taxes is that without stable money, everything gets distorted. When you have stable money, then you can look at taxes and you have a foundation where you can see, okay, this change in tax rates creates this amount of growth or destroys this amount of growth. So we have no stability. You have these two levers and they're both unstable and the Fed driving the price of interest creates capital allocation or misallocation that maybe overrides taxation, a change, either a positive or negative change in taxation. So it's really, it's really hard to, to sort out what taxation is best without a stable money foundation to base it against. But right now, it's even worse than that because we're seeing wide swaths of our nations being wiped out. New York City is a financial capital. It's practically a ghost town. So what effect does a taxation have when you're under the guise of this COVID business, you're wiping out the entire economy. It's, for me, it's, okay, let's focus on 
Let's focus on what's really happening in our world. There's huge changes being brought about that subsume the normal debates over taxation and money. And if you don't get those into perspective and get some visual visual look into to these things that are happening, if people aren't aware of these things happening, it's hard to have this discussion on taxes. It's almost talking about renovating your home when you're in the middle of a war zone or something. It's you got more something more important to think about. But in general, I would agree with I defer on taxes because because like I said before, until you get the money, I don't see that you can have that debate on taxes and it be that effective. But in general, yeah, like you were talking about with Nathan, the people who do look into that stuff, I would default to their yeah. views on it. It's interesting hearing you talk about the reality of how things really are at the moment. And again, listening to an interview with Ricards, Jim Ricards last week, he pushed back hard against this pent-up demand argument. So this idea of a V-shaped recovery, right, that there'll be a vaccine, the economy will reopen and magical pixie dust will descend from the skies and everyone's life will go back to normal. But he, he said something very interesting about pent-up demand. For listeners not familiar with it, it's this simple idea that during lockdowns, everybody's been sitting on this huge store of savings and they're just desperate to run out to their nearest shopping mall and spend. And I wrote to, I was in an online email conversation with a couple of funds managers in London and they're really pushing the pent-up demand argument. They're, they're shaping their, their strategy. And I said two things. The first one is I don't think Amazon disappeared during lockdown, right? People were still spending and... Rickard's point was great. He said he and his wife go out for dinner once a week. Pre-COVID, they used to go out every Saturday night. And he said that he's been in lockdown now for over 20 weeks. And he said when they go back out to have dinner, he said they're not going to order 20, 20 meals. They're not ordering the backlog of meals they missed. He said they're going to order one meal. So all of that lost capacity is lost. It's genuinely not there. So I mentioned that in terms of... Yeah, I, I just reading a fair bit of optimism that I, I don't know whether I'm a natural pessimist, but do you see much cause for optimism? Well, again, I alluded to pin up demand as one of these terms that they come up with to explain what they can't predict or don't understand. And whether there's pin up demand or there's not, there's a foundational system for growth that's based on stable money and low taxes and behavioral incentives, everything we've talked about in this podcast. And so to the extent, on the one hand, you say you have pent-up demand, but on the other hand, we've wiped out wide swaths of the middle class, literally. And, and it's really just getting started because they've had a, people haven't had to pay rent. They've been giving a few basic income checks to people, but everything's been just like on hold. The, the reality hasn't occurred yet. There's... The, the people are going to have to pay, whether they're going to default on their homes or their lands or their businesses, that's all in on hold right now. It's hard to be optimistic when I see what's coming because they're talking about health passes for travel. You're not going to have a vibrant economy when half the population doesn't want to get a vaccine and refuses to travel because they can't travel if they don't have a health path. It seems like they're promoting all these things in steps. You get your vaccine, then the next thing that's going to be a health pass, then it's going to be, whether it's going to be a mandatory vaccine from your company. All these things are occurring step to step. And there's, and I can't be optimistic about any of this stuff because it's a step towards more totalitarian control, which is the opposite of anything optimistic about a uh, behavioral economic model foundation you'll appreciate this I, I read this somewhere in a book years ago that you don't want an optimistic airline pilot that you don't want an airline pilot it's just yeah it'll be fine we'll just throw we'll just land it in the cloud bank it'll be okay <laughs> uh, you, know, you want a, you want an airline pilot that's meticulous about assuming that the worst can happen and uh, i think it is interesting times it's going to be interesting having john on next week because he's a, he's a real advocate of the entrepreneurial energy of the United States. But I wonder if there's really a, a, a significant transition in the national mood, it seems. I'm watching it here from Australia, I'm, I'm pontificating on it, but it seems that the kind of fundamental shared 
values around what constitutes a good society are, are very much in flux, not just for the US, but for a lot of uh, economy, a lot of countries in the world. All right, so let's pick this up next week. I'm going to get through the next three posts in Jude Wininski's Supply Side University. I'll put links to that for everybody. I want to put some links to Mike's gold, his writing on gold. I'm going to go on the record here and think it's about time for Mr. Michael Kendall to write a book on gold signals. I think uh, it's about time because I listen to you and I'm going, I, I just got to go deeper on this. We'll get everybody across to check out themanonthemargin.com. And uh, let me just say one th- one more thing about optimism. All the things I talked about seem fairly pessimistic, but but when you look back in history, things never go as planned. So they have all these plans that you can read about and, and see them happening. But things go awry. People step out from the shadows. People wake up. And that's the history of the world, that there there's advances, there's setbacks, but, but eventually mankind moves forward. This is a sort of a, the last year has been a unique pessimistic period in, in my viewpoint. I, I remain optimistic and spiritually and, and my fellow man and, and the way the world works, which is, uh, of course, Jew's book. I don't want to, to take this away, people to take this away as a completely negative and pessimistic outlook on the world. I actually have the opposite view. I'm just not happy with what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. For me, with three young kids, I yeah, I really do look, I look ahead, and I think, okay, what do we need to do? What do we? What are the skill sets? What are the knowledge bases? What is? What do we need to do? I think Churchill famously said that the the further you look into past into the past, the easier it is to predict the future. So, I guess we look at some of these big transitions in human history, and yeah, I guess there's always people that navigate it well and i guess it's about being prepared and being vigilant about what's happening and and being yeah, prepared i think an odd thing is i think people are starting to evaluate what's important and what's not yeah. important because of everything that's happening and i know in my own life i've changed quite a bit in the last year things that i thought i needed to do and wanted to do i now see that that stuff there's more important things and it's not this it's like getting back to a more basics of life and that that way I see things as positive because when things are going good, you have a more tended towards more materialistic sense. And this has sent me in a direction more of a, spir- a spiritual sense. Absolutely. And that's certainly a, a positive thing too. So that's, I just want to put that out there because I think there are positive things that will happen. And in the long run, we might all be better off for this interlude. I, on one of my other podcasts, I... I shared a quote yesterday, which I've got here. I'm reading a, a, a great book on on masculinity by a guy called Morgan Snyder, and he said, the quote is, few things have more power to help us cultivate a life-giving habit of soul than unhinging our emotional life from outcomes and renouncing the idolatry of success as our meaning as men and women. And I spoke about that because it's, I think for many of us in these difficult times, it's very easy to hook our emotional and psychological well-being to external forces. And I guess on one level, it's obvious. If you've just lost your job, it's it's not easy to go dancing in the streets. But I think you make a good point, I think. And maybe this ties into Jude's, Jude's view of the way the world really is. We're, as beings, we're geared for relationship, belonging, community, connection. And political economy is important because it, it is not as easy to be happy if you're in abject poverty. But I think you make a good point that there are. this is helping many of us rediscover what may be truly important in life. I think so. And yeah, yeah it's interesting because my career, I said to someone at dinner last night, I was due in Baltimore in April last year to speak to do a you know, keynote 10,000 people and I was in the US every few months on speaking tours and my life was remarkably different and then and it all changed and my entire life has, has changed enormously in 12 months and would I have wished that at the time no but it wouldn't have opened up this uh, this new direction and the study and talking to people like you so I guess there is some encouragement out there that when one set of doors in life shuts due to lockdown or whatever else then often 
it's an invitation to some new adventures. And that's what I think about that. All right, Mr. Candle, thank you for your time. And we'll touch base again next week. I think we've got John Tamney coming on. But you and I will pick up the next load of Supply Side University musings on the next episode. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, you too. I hope I didn't deviate too much from the what you wanted to accomplish on this. This, this podcast is like central banking. There are no rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just make them up as we go. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Speak soon. All right. God bless. See you, Jonathan. Bye. Hey, guys. Jonathan with you again. I really hoped you enjoyed that episode. So much to go through there. I find that I often listen to these episodes two or three times when I'm out training and I get something new every time I re-listen. So I hope you really got some value there. I think Mike's depth of learning, his commitment to understanding the real engine of what drives our macro economy is just so valuable to us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast. If other people that have a fascination for some of these topics, then please make sure you're sharing this on your social media feeds. Everything else you can find on the website at supplysidepartners.com. So that's it from me, Jonathan Doyle, your host here at the Supply Side Podcast. And we're going to have another episode for you very soon.